Are you registered to vote? Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. To update or check your voter registration status, go to headcount.org, where you'll find all the information you need to be ready for Election Day. Headcount tours with musicians to help concert attendees register to vote, but you don't need to leave your house to register or to get voting info. Register to vote by visiting headcount.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mixtape Memories. Memories. I'm Matt Hart-Spade. And I'm Jenners. And we have a great guest today. You're in for a treat. Matt Rodbard, who is the founding editor of Taste, New York Times bestselling author. We're going to be talking about some food memories, food music memories. I don't know. Is that how you say it? (laughs) (laughs) Talking about, like... I guess mostly the yachts, but I have some 90s memories. Yeah, just kind of like how it was back then, running around New York, going to shows, and then, you know, inevitably eating food at all hours. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm a huge fan of it. It takes me back. It's like blast from the past every episode. It's like <laughs> voices I, I knew back in the day and just keep doing it. I, I hope it goes forever, guys. Oh, just love thanks. it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah been like a food journalist for a while now and you know now you have the cooking magazine taste and like how did that Mm -hmm. all get started for you your love of food so how did it happen like food and music i mean i was fortunate that i lived in the east village um in the niagara building at the corner of 7th and a from 02 to 05. nice i moved there from college and i so i started as a music writer First and foremost, I worked at Spin Magazine as an intern and worked at MTV News with that whole crew Yeah. Um, starting in, in 03. But um, so I got to, and I wrote for all sorts of places, zines, print. I had my own zine 2040. And so I, I music was really my love um, and my passion. And it still is obviously today, but food is definitely more of my job and my passion. So that, but I, I really was fortunate. And we can talk a little bit about how it segued around 2011 um, full-time from music to food. I feel like they they went so hand-in-hand, particularly back in the day, because like Jen was mentioning, it was kind of one of those things, if the gig is from, you know, 8 to midnight, you got to eat something quick before, and then afterwards you're hungry. So you're kind of constantly running around to these spots, and in a lot of cases they're like, kind of quick experiences like the quick taco or the quick pizza Mm -hmm. or or you get a drink here and whatnot what were some of your favorite places back in the day well i mean in the east village you know we were we were living it up i mean we had you know lots of places that were single operator like single restaurants remember this is a time it's before seamless there's no real (laughs) iphones obviously we you talk about that a lot on the on the podcast about this free iphone so you're really having to dial up walk down to the restaurant, pick up your food or just dine in. I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, <laughs> I mean, for me, one restaurant I really wanted to call out was Bow 111, um, which maybe isn't familiar to all your, your listeners, but this was such an influential restaurant from Michael Bowen um, at the corner of 7th and C. And it was one of the first Vietnamese restaurants to ever get a New York Times star. And, you know, it wasn't really a quick takeout pre-show kind of place, but 
the way he, Michael was doing noodles and just really making Vietnamese food for the masses in 2002, it's like he was like light years ahead of his time. And I just really want to. That's somewhere we can like play ping pong all day with this. Because let's, <laughs> yeah. let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I think between the three of us, we have a lot of um, yeah. memories. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll, we definitely will ping pong a bit. But seventh and C is a good starting spot, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't too far from you if you were by seven A. No, and and you know, look at seven A. Like you, you walk up the street, you're at Odessa. You're at Odessa Bar, which Odessa Bar was where I had my first drink underage at nineteen, nineteen ninety nine. I mean, did you did you guys go to? I know like Allen Ginsberg was hanging out at Odessa. Uh, you know, it was. Did you guys ever go there? Oh yeah, like just late night, really. I never went yeah. there like for proper like dinner, <laughs> lunch, or anything like that. Yeah. But it was always yeah. like late night. Yeah, yeah, I loved Odessa. I mean, I I think like they were recently in. There was like talk of them possibly going under, but it seems like that was just a rumor. Thankfully. Well, I went. I I I went there a few weeks ago during quarantine to pay respects because I did hear that news as well. But I've come to find out Gotham Mist reported that it is not closing. So thankfully, yeah. Yeah, yeah apparently so. they're just renovating or something. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> people got scared and started the people whole got scared. rumor train. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's the big trend right now. Is like <laughs> what place nostalgic place is closing because of pandemic? You know. Yeah. Like, uh, I just heard Snackies is closing in Williamsburg, yeah. which is, like, I, I had so many memories in the beginning of Snackies, yeah. like, hanging out when it mm-hmm. first opened. But then I stopped hanging out there because um, I felt like it was, like, where indie rock dudes pick up Asian girls. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you went right into it. There's I know. Like no mystery. It's like, that's what it was for. <laughs> Can we talk about San Loco then? Yes. Let's talk about indie rock dudes picking up everyone. Whoa. All right. I got to ask you guys. Are you San pro- Loco, I have a lot of memories. So, yeah, go ahead. Pro or con? Like, for me, I, I lived on the Macho Nacho during that period. <laughs> Ate that too much. I remember Lady Gaga's boyfriend, Luke, I think his name is, worked there. That was like a little thing that I remember <laughs> making making jokes about. But I just want to say, I went there recently to dine, uh, and it, the food has fallen off. <laughs> or, let me ask you this, it's fallen off, or did I just not know really what was going on? I think it was always bad, right? Like I think it was always bad. <laughs> it was always so I always bad. got a stomachache afterwards. Like, oh my god! I just didn't think things were very flavorful. But you know what's yeah. funny? I haven't thought of the macho nachos in quite some time, but that's exactly what I would order also. Such a um, good deal. It was $5. It was a good deal. It was a lot of food for $5 now because that was important. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it never really, like, I mean, I was there a lot just because all the venues were around the corner, mm-hmm. obviously, pianos and living room and everything else. Yeah. And, uh, cake I shop. just mm-hmm. Cake shop. Oh, man. Uh, but Arlene's, but um, Arlene's actually didn't go to a bunch. But yeah, San Loco was never my favorite <laughs> food, but it was convenient no. and it was inexpensive, Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. What about Marshall Stack? Did you ever eat there? I don't remember that place. No, I always thought the sandwiches were really good there. The food was was excellent, and it was right around the corner from Bowery Ballroom. So that I guess that's one of my memories. Is in Marshall Stack was was always good for a decent bite when San Loco was obviously not really good for. It. And I agree with you; it's not flavorful. That stuff is not. They need more sauce. <laughs> Marshall Stack, I remember going to, but also like after Bowery shows, and it was yeah. like, uh, yeah, I was. 
already a couple drinks in at that point. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, going back to San Loco, I remember interviewing the Joy Formidable there after oh. a gig at Pianos. Um, and uh, I, I dug up the interview on YouTube. It's kind of funny because, like, my questions are so not exciting at all. But I think back in the day, like, before I understood nuance and before I understood how to not ask the obvious question, it was just how it was, you know. But it was, I mean, it was a nice spot because you could just get a little booth and, you know, no one would really bother you. Speaking of interviewing bands, I interviewed Franz Ferdinand at Cafe Colonial, which was on Houston. Do you remember that place? It was like a Brazilian style. It was on like the yes. south side of Houston. Yeah. And I remember Chloe Walsh had set it up. She was at uh, Press Here at the time. And I remember going in and this band was just at the moment getting big and I did it for like Big Takeover. Or no, not one of the zines. And it was weird to do that type of interview because I'd never really that wasn't really my thing to do like the the afternoon band in town interview um and I remember we talked about the band orange juice a lot and then I think I ordered orange juice <laughs> to be to be clever <laughs> and you know that's what you do when you're like 22 trying to interview bands and trying exactly. to exactly do something funny oh <laughs> did I'm... they pick up on that yeah, they're really – They're Alex is incredibly fast and sharp and just one of the greater minds in rock. And, yeah, he did. He went along with it. He was he was very polite and for my bad joke. <laughs> but we talked a lot about Scottish pop. That's what we talked about. Yeah. I once – and I know I talked about it in a previous episode, but, like, I once saw The Cribs at Bowery Ballroom, and afterwards I met Johnny Moore, and all I wanted to do was, like, BS with him and buy him a drink. And he also wanted orange juice. Because he doesn't drink. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Whoa, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> that was a good one. I, I pretty much like passed out afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jinners, what's your um, what's your band interview restaurant story? You gotta have one. Oh geez, um, at a restaurant. You gotta have one. Well, you must have done one at pianos, no? I did. I did. <laughs> I uh, the only one I remember is uh, C Ray. I interviewed uh, Jeff Shankoff from C Ray um, mm -hmm. there. Um, and I still have the tape, actually, the little micro cassette. <laughs> oh yeah, got a oh, box those of those. Big, yeah. And I don't yeah. know what he does anymore, but I follow him on Instagram, and um, he always has these like amazing like landscape photos, like like he, in like like all these tr exotic places. He must do something where he just works remotely and gets to travel <laughs> like, to really amazing Sweet. places. I have a piano, piano's question. So I, I think I went on the first night and then, so let's, can we talk about piano smell for a second? <laughs> yes. Because, I can smell it just when you mention it. You know, like I went the first night or whatever and it was like a smell. I'm like, okay, that's like new bar smell. But then like 12 years later, it still had that smell. Maybe, <laughs> What's up with that? What was the smell? I don't remember the smell. I've been thinking about this. It was like slightly cleaner. It was like kind of in the range of pine saw, like kind of Windexy smell. It wasn't like hmm. a warm food smell. It was like something very synthetic, yeah. and it was like, but it was so unique that clearly it was the piano smell. I agree with you, but I also would probably add in that it was like, um, as if someone poured a beer on a carpet every day for fourteen <laughs> years, and then like that that mildewy kind of stink mixed with the pine saw. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> How do I not know this smell? Uh, I, I also have a bad sense of smell, so maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I know, and I I was there last year too. I went for New Colossus or whatever. So it wasn't that long ago for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I used to be there all the friggin' time, like at least once a week. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, that stage was high and it, it made sense in a lot for a lot of bands. I thought it was a nice stage. Mm-hmm. I feel like so many of these food memories, too, are like based in the Lower East Side, especially mm-hmm. in the aughts, just because that's where yeah. all the venues were and they were all close together. So you could like bounce from show to show, grab a bite here and there on your way and then like, you know, go to the bar. Yeah, there were so many Mm -hmm. bars, too. I mean, I think uh, we were talking earlier about The Magician. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel The Magician, and then Welcome to the Johnsons to some extent. Right. But I feel The Magician, and to this day, it's still open, and I walked by recently, and they're still doing quarantine style, but cash only, what a jukebox, what a, the tile, clean bar, what an amazing place. I just have to say that. Yeah, magician. Yeah, magician was one of my spots, and notably for that jukebox. I just remember, like, I would go in at like happy hour, and then put ten dollars in the jukebox and just play <laughs> every Smiths album. Mm. And then anyone who else who would come in as it would get more crowded would just have to deal with the Smiths for three hours. <laughs> that was yeah, my love little that. Yeah. yeah, no, but I liked it. They had like a two for one happy hour, and it was. I don't know. It was fu- it was always fine for me, and also yeah. it was right off the F train, which was perfect yes. for when I was living off the F train. Hundred percent agree, and I know what. So then there's Schiller's, which less fond memories. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I feel like that was just like located in the right spot because, like, in the way, way, way east, lower east side, you would have like Shanae and Rothko, and then mm. like in the East Villagey kind of lower east side, it was like Mercury Lounge. So. If you were bouncing between shows or you're just in that area like that place was open but it was like not a great scene fully agree and those keith fignelli restaurants are closing quickly and i just am not a huge fan of them i thought that they were they were just artifice and artificially like artificial sense of cool mm. and and just didn't have the soul of a lot of places that i think we're going to talk about more and you you know fucking douchebags i mean seriously yeah Yeah. i feel the same i feel the same i mean i do yeah i mean i don't actually remember the food i just remember it being very crowded and everyone in in that place was just like someone i didn't really want to talk to yeah (laughs) it like i think it was trying to be like um you know like those fancy restaurants in the meatpacking district you know kind of had that vibe yeah i mean heading up the road i'd like to talk about kate's joint for a second yeah did you were you fans of kate's joint i mean i i went there a couple times i mean i have good memories no specific you know memories i feel like it was always with my vegan or vegetarian friends yeah <laughs> i i always found that place the food was always like pretty good but honestly it was where you took your out-of-town vegetarian friends <laughs> but you know clearly a cool vibe and like really interesting um service and always uh, it was a, a female owned restaurant mm-hmm. and cmj weekends those weekends in october i just recall that place being awesome like being where the bands you'd see vans around it and and it feeling like a real sense of community in the east village 
Yeah. Uh, and I think I went there maybe when I was in college too. But like really, I thought that that was like one of those places that could never exist in New York today, mm. just because it's like a single restaurant, single operator, and like it's not a chain. There's no real there's no real angle for it to be great for takeout or for seamless. This is all pre seamless. Uh, so it makes me sad because I think the New York dining scene has changed so dramatically away from the styles of restaurants because of real estate. And I, I think of Kate's a lot because I, Kate's joint because it's just it was a special place and it was beyond the food. And now we just don't have them anymore. So it's true. Um, a lot of places are kind of fallen by the wayside. You always hear about them. Um, did yeah. you guys like go to Great Jones Cafe a lot back in the day? <laughs> um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, just because, like, I always, for some reason, when I think of Great Jones Cafe, I think of a certain vibe that I don't necessarily like. And I don't know if it's because maybe oh, back in the day. Like, interesting. Yeah. Oh, you didn't like Are you vibe? not a pavement fan? <laughs> I don't know. No, I like pavement. It has nothing to do with that. I don't know. I just got a vibe when I walked in that I didn't necessarily love. And I, I can't define what it is. I don't know. I well, Mark Eyeball worked worked there all the time. Like he was behind the bar, yeah, and really nice guy. I mean, just would serve you the shandy or whatever that ginger and rum drink. They had a light and a dark, awesome drink. Um, New Orleans food, so it was like this is cool New Orleans restaurant. And Matt, I think I get a sense. Maybe it's the was it the like weird decor? Like it felt like a little like out of place for new york it just maybe that was it i'm trying to like articulate what you're saying you know what it might be it might be that pete i you know it's kind of one of those things i sort of blocked out but it might be that the people i went with the few times i was there mm -hmm. i no longer speak to and therefore <laughs> i have the attachment you know what it is it's it's, it's more the people maybe and not the, the place itself the mm -hmm. place was the unfortunate um middle That's, person here that happens and then across the street acme underground yeah mm -hmm. Just a really great venue. And I remember seeing the Polyvinyl Showcase at CMJ there back in like 04. And I stand hard for Polyvinyl Records. Just mm -hmm. got a shout out on a music podcast. My love for that label. And, hmm. you know, some like Rainer Maria, my buddies at Paris, Texas, like back, all those bands that define Midwestern emo from the late 90s into the early 2000s. Just some of my favorite. Aloha was on that, was on that mm -hmm. label. Love, love that band. So. Just remember those those shows in the basement were really good. Yeah, I was a big fan of Aloha, and more so Raina Maria, who Jen and I actually saw a few years ago. No way. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> really? they were back. So. Wait, oh Yeah, man. was that at Elsewhere? It off? was at Elsewhere, yeah. yeah. Cool show. Yeah. Oh, that would, I would have gone to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great Jones, I felt like, you know, they were always, like, connected to the music scene, because, like, I think people would go there a lot after mm -hmm. shows or before shows or they'd have dinner there. I mean, mm -hmm. their food was, like, so good. And like, oh, man. The, yeah, they had really good drinks. And then, like, one of my friends and I who are, like, big pavement fans, we our favorite thing to do is, like, randomly go there when Mark Eibold was, like, bartending and, like, sit at the bar and, like, pretend we didn't know who he was. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> Did he catch on? No, I don't think so. No, okay. but, like, <laughs> we, yeah. it was just like this, like quiet thrill. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's a single bar, single bartender kind of setup. The guy's working; he's like expediting food from the back. Yeah. So like, Mar it's not just some vanity bullshit. Like, my, like that dude was putting in the reps. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Um, 
I, I tried not to acknowledge him as well. I, I played that game in my own way. It's hard not to, though. <laughs> and they had a great jukebox there, oh, you yeah. know. So I just think, um, and that was like kind of like the first thing to go when they were like, cl- like first announced that they were closing. I think they. So I think Gabe Stuhlman might have bought it. Gabe, Gabe Stuhlman owns a bunch of restaurants in the city. He's a restaurateur. It's from Wisconsin. And we went to college together, really good guy. He, I think, took it back over, and then pandemic happened, and I, so I think it sold out. But I believe it, it will be reopening under new management. Interesting. So yeah, but but still, never going to be the spirit of what it was before. Yeah, there was more of a punk rock spirit to it. But I mean, like I first yeah. went there not like through the music scene, but when I was like a freshman in college, and like some you know guy took me to brunch there and i like had my first like bloody mary <laughs> i didn't even know what bloody wow. mary's were before <laughs> i was such a dummy and i was just like you know i hadn't been exposed to a lot of things so like yeah. you know being in new york i was just learning so much about like everything just because everything yeah. is here so that was like my first kind of great jones like cafe memory and then like later on after college i think I got back into it because, you know, people would have like after parties there or like meet up there all the time. So it's it's a really cool thought about food in New York as a young person. Like I moved here in 02 when I was um, when I was in my 20 or interned here in my 20s. And I had not been exposed to a lot of food. And and I think it's it's a common refrain when you move to New York, especially now or back in the day. You know, you were having your first Korean food. You were having, which I had it on 32nd Street, and now you fell in love with it. It's amazing food. And you're having your first dim sum. You're having your, maybe even your first taco truck. And New York is wonderful for that. It, it really is a city where if you have only a few bucks, you can get, still to this day, uh, wonderful food and be introduced to the world of food, the global cuisine. And, like, I think that's what got me into food um, was just by circumstance of living here I was able to experience all sorts of different cuisine and to start writing about it and it was really easy if I had not lived in New York it would have been much more difficult to establish this kind of base so I just and I think in this period we're talking about there was even more of these restaurants that had like specific cuisine and just were really I think like Robert Seitzema wrote about it in the Village Voice and I would go to those restaurants and like wow there's like such a world here Also, back then, we I drank a lot more than I, I, I hardly drink anymore, but, like, uh, you needed food <laughs> to, like, <laughs> suck up all the alcohol. Very true. And, like, continue partying. <laughs> so. Did we drink more in the early 2000s than, like, the people in their early 20s drink now? Yeah, I think because now everyone is vaping and whatnot and, and edibles and stuff. And yeah. we, for me, it was always a drink. Well, at least it was at that point, you know. So, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I just remember having, like, way too many gin and tonics and waking up with, like, that terrible pounding headache. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't miss that. It was always marketed to us, too. I mean, like, I when know. I was, you know, back in, like, editorial, it was, like, yeah. near, like, you know, 
talking to like Cornerstone or something like a marketing mm-hmm. company like and they're like we have red stripe and like mm-hmm. let's yeah. sponsor oh your party God. with some free red stripe and so like, i mean sparks back in like sparks. 2004 <laughs> like those sparks open bars oh my God. red stripe open bars modelo open bars like all those weird vodka brands mm-hmm. i feel like it was very it flowed like lit obviously had an open bar literally every night for some random brand yeah and i wonder like (laughs) we were kind of in our cups a bit as kids then and it feels like maybe now the kids who are into music i hate using that word but i'm just being specific are like maybe not in their cups as much with the music scene and maybe they're processing this great music that's happening in a different way than being totally wasted at shows which felt like that was the refrain for most of my friends in the industry and in just New Yorkers. They're experiencing it through their iPhones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> They're too uh, busy. Like... Oh, you're right. And it's th- true. It's yeah. a very different experience. Maybe they yeah. took an edible before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Yeah. I think of like Sine, like I think of the drink specials at Sine yeah. and like just being at these shows that you know, Stevie and the radio at Sine, like, my God, what a memory. But then I'm thinking, did I drink too much of that show to even, like, really love it? And I'm like, yeah, I lost my camera that night. It sucked. <laughs> I drank too much. And, like, I just, the music was so good. And, like, I don't know. I'm sorry this is diverging into, like, alcohol. But <laughs> I feel like it maybe skewed some of my own personal thoughts about the time and the music that was happening. Yeah, for me personally, it was what I always call like a second adolescence uh, where like, you know, all the things that I didn't experience growing up, like with a strict childhood, I got to do. And so I felt Mm -hmm. like even though I was in my 20s that I was like hanging out with the cool kids in high school. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. that's kind of how it was. And that's how the music scene is. I mean, like. Yeah. It's very loose and party oriented and like very social, you know, there's always like a promotional party going on or a show or, you know, some dance party or some event that was always going on and you were always like bouncing from one to another. <laughs> Like, I miss, D- I used to DJ at, like, Motor City quite a bit yeah. and Filter 14 and up in, in Brooklyn uh, at some spots. And, like, I miss that. Um, and I wish there was a way to do that now where music could be played in bars and it be cool and accessible. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's happening right now. And, obviously, dance parties were such a part of that, that era. Yeah. And I don't know if that's happening. I think the music scene has obviously changed and dance music is different. Uh, and it's great. There's some incredible dance music that people dance to right now. But, like, that was such a social element, like going to DJ nights. That was, like, rock DJ nights. Mm-hmm. Yes. I remember getting so excited to see Stephen Merritt DJ or Paul Banks from Interpol DJ mm-hmm. at Beauty Bar. Like, that, I would get, like, totally. I would get so excited or Andy Rourke from the Smiths and just, like, yeah. stare at them the whole night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, no, it doesn't – I feel like you don't get that as much yeah. these days. I think that's particular to that time period, though, because, I mean, around that time, I was also working at ASCAP, which is like a music performing rights organization. And I I think it just happened that it was 
a great timing for me because I was becoming more and more part of like the indie rock scene and that was what was becoming popular in music and that's what like media was paying attention to mm-hmm. at that time and so it was their focus too because they go with like who is mm-hmm. earning money and so it just like was like a weird coincidence what a cool job must have been great to be able to cross over your pro-life and your nightlife and it was yeah. an interesting transition because like before that mm-hmm. i was in teen media which was like mm-hmm. not my favorite and but <laughs> it was a job and yeah. then like got to work there and actually like interview like real people you know real like songwriters mm-hmm. i respect and stuff like that like i was also like just friends with all the membership people so like when they were s- signing bands or looking for bands to sign i could like connect them and it was fun mm-hmm. you know it was like a little club back then you know and matt we share we both dj at angels and kings that is true <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh what am my what is so your memory pete wentz was the owner or part owner or what what was the deal uh, I know the deal. My friend Scott Nagelberg works at Crush Management, and so it was like a bunch of the Crush Management folks. So it was like Pete Wentz and some of those other bands. And um, what a I I really enjoyed DJing there because the booth was in a very good spot. I would say you could definitely see it was elevated and it was central, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you could see what was going on. It was a small booth, but. And that bar, like that was a club. That was truly a clubhouse, right? I mean, they would yeah. close certain nights. Yeah, I just what? remember I hosted like a what I call, deemed a blogger's delight, but what it wound up being was like a <laughs> awesome. like a singles party, Ooh. and uh, everybody got trashed. And I just remember like a pretty much. I looked around at one point, everybody was making out with someone. It's like, oh, I guess it was a good party, um, but I don't re- I don't yeah. remember much of it. And I think that that kind of ties into what you were saying earlier. It's just like because so much of the the booze and the and the partying and seeing the bands was so hand in hand. Yeah. Some memories are more blurred than others. I know. I mean, my CB's memories too. Like, I wish I had those. I wish I still had those. Be, but I don't. And I mean, I have a few shows like Ted Leo. I have like another like a Wax Wings Brendan Benson show. But I think about like I wish I could go back to those spots the way that I could go back to places. I, like a decade ago that like restaurants that I've written about and I've, I've stopped drinking myself and like I think it's better for memory and just health in general but like I just it's a nice to reflect on this period as it being very fun but like I'm a little I'm a little like on the fence about like the what did we were we doing to our bodies at that time to like not fully comprehend them now I don't know oh yeah I mean it's when you're young and having fun you don't think about stuff like that like the future (laughs) and like you know your health and because you just think you're invincible and um you know like you could deal with the hangover you know the next day Mm. um but i think yeah i mean for me personally i i drink less um although i guess during pandemic it's like risen a little bit but like um you know, typically when I'm at a bar, I don't always have a drink. Even like it just, it's just mm-hmm. like not my thing, um, mm-hmm. too much anymore. And I just can't imagine getting like that wasted. You know, I used to get so wasted that like um, I would like throw up and then like mm-hmm. catch like a second wind. <laughs> oh <laughs> like, my god! Yep. 
<laughs> that certainly wasn't healthy. So. Wow. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Do you guys have CB's memories though? Like I, I just like I've been talking to friends about that era. I mean, the end of CB's essentially the the early two thousands. CBGBs. Yeah. Um, my last memory was like Sonic Youth when they did their release oh, wow. show there for. Mm-hmm what was that album i don't even remember yeah. but um they had like an album release show and i think mark eibold was playing that show actually yeah, yeah. i mean for me uh definitely those ted leo the ted leo show i think that was probably one of the better ted leo shows i saw um i think he was particularly inspired to play that stage and ted leo was an art is an artist of that era i mean hearts of oak is like such a an album of the era for me and then when mm. we were talking about the repeat skip i was thinking maybe hearts of oak but like i think it just really captured the spirit of that era like that album and him but i you know i don't remember too many other i saw like gym class heroes there like for a showcase um yeah i i I know there's other shows but man i i just wish i had more memory there at that time how about you matt yeah me too i mean i i've only to be honest i only saw a handful of shows at cb's um I agree with what you said about Ted Leo, uh, just and that album in particular, kind of soundtracking this time. The band that I remember the most from CBs was when I saw Thursday. I was really into like screamo stuff mm-hmm. in the early 2000s for a hot minute, mm-hmm. and um, I had never seen Thursday properly. I saw them do an acoustic set at the Apple Store the day before, <laughs> and I guess they were in town to do all these promo type gigs that were, you know, underplays in rooms that are much smaller than they, you know, they typically mm-hmm. play. And they played CBs, and it was like somehow I got on the list. And that show, like, it was like all dudes that just <laughs> wanted to like push each other around. And I was just there for the for the music, and I was like, oh shit, I'm gonna die at this show. <laughs> it Whoa. was very scary because I mean, it really was as if I were at a punk show yeah. in the '80s or something. And it was like, oh my god, I have to go to the sides of the room here and be that old fart. And at the time I was like, I don't know, <laughs> 23, 24, but I already felt like the oldest person in the room, you know? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I think I saw Super Furry Animals there. One more came back to mind, and that was that's a band oh, that nice. I got to see at that, at that period yeah. a lot. And, you know, I think we share a love for Britpop as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I first, like, came to New York, I was working for, like, the college newspaper, and our first assignment was me and my roommate, who was also like a journalism major, basically got assigned like, is punk rock dead? That was our <laughs> assignment. And we had to like go out and write an article about this. And like, I will tell you, like, I didn't know anything about punk rock. So I was just like, okay, cool. Like we're gonna go to like Eighth Street and like just, mm-hmm. you know, walk down St. Mark's and like interview people who look like punk rockers. <laughs> <laughs> And we would just walk up to them and be like, what do you think? Do you think punk rock is dead? And like, whatever, like (laughs) get their answers. And it was like the most awkward like thing ever. And then we wandered into CBGB's and Hilly Crystal was sitting right there in the front. Mm -hmm. Always at the front. We were like, hey, can we like interview you (laughs) (laughs) about the death Mm -hmm. of punk rock? And I think mm-hmm. we were there for like quite a while, like like at least an hour when he was just like mm-hmm. talking, talking, talking. Oh. I think at the time I just didn't realize how remarkable it was because I just, I literally didn't know anything. Were there any other spots that you wanted to talk about? One place that 
I just really remember being important for me in the East Village was Mama's Food Shop. Mm, yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys ever went there, but it was awesome. It was basically the East Village version of Meat and Three. It was a hot counter, and you could order fried chicken meatloaf out of the Southern Classics, and it was on B, I believe, between B and A. And, man, it was – that place was, like, definitely affordable. You could order for, like, under $10. Um, and then the other one was Barraquet, which I didn't personally go to a lot because I think I was likely going to San Loco, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but that place, it was it was around for almost 20 years, It you know, on Houston Street, right up from the Mercury Lounge. And really, what a cool sign from an era – and man, they tore that thing down and built a skyscraper mm. or built a big office complex, whatever. So, jeez, yeah, New York. Do you have memories of those spots <laughs> at all? Barricade, yes, a little bit. I, I remember mm-hmm. having a good time there and good food. Yeah, yeah, yeah Barricade was good. I mean, in the aughts, I was like such a broke child that like I um, I always like going to those like free pizza bars. Oh you know, yeah, you buy a drink that and you get thing. like a little mm-hmm. personal pizza <laughs> yep that was a thing brooklyn and in manhattan yeah both. and i don't know if that's like a trend that is anywhere else but have, do you know that i i mean the only place that comes to mind that maybe still is it even still open alligator lounge i don't even know on 14th no the, oh that wait, was crocodile lounge. crocodile, There's one of the, crocodile. Oh. Uh, that was their other one alligator was in brooklyn right yeah one I think maybe listeners will remember is Burritoville. Mm-hmm. Burritoville had 19 locations. I did a little research. 19 locations in New York at one point. It was in, like basically doing like hippie mission-style burritos. And now they only have one, I think, in Jersey City. But it is the Route 66 vegan burrito. That was my, that was my jam. <laughs> I just have to shout that out. So. I remember, and that is actually exactly what I ordered as well. For some reason, the one that comes to mind is the one that was in Chelsea. Yeah, like oh, yeah. on twenty third, I guess. Yeah, um, I remember that one. Or better by the than movie theater. Else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't like um, burritos, so <laughs> I don't think I ever went there. <laughs> They're too big. Dude, I'm I'm more ta- I'm pro tacos personally. I don't know if that's what you're what you're where you're going. I with prefer this. tacos. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. can't. Burritos is like too much, and I don't like beans, so it doesn't work for me. I have one to talk about, Plant Bar. I never really I, went there. I read uh, Lizzie Goodman's book, um, and you know the James Murphy scenes where he's like playing to, to himself at Plant Bar. Uh-huh. It's like right around the corner from where I live. I went there a little bit for like open bars and stuff, but I don't have like the strongest memory of Plant Bar being a thing. I know it was like the DFA place. Mm. Uh, I know, I know you have one, uh, Jim. You want to talk about which is Florent, right? Oh, that was a 90s memory for me, like, um, when I was in college, and I wasn't, like, the college student who liked to hang out at college bars. I'd only wanted to hang out, like, in adult bars, (laughs) and so, like, there was one we found called Hell that was in the meatpacking district, Mm -hmm. and uh, two hours down, it was was Florent, which was, like, it's pretty well-known diner. I think, like, IFC even did, like, a documentary about it. It was, like, the cool place to hang out after drinking so and it was open late night and yeah. i always got the french fries and i feel like people around me who ate escargot like would mm-hmm. eat the escargot there my memory it was extremely good like that it was a high quality french brasserie in yes. the meatpacking districts which at the time 
was clearly not what it is today. It was it was mostly clubs, yeah, um, and and nightlife, and it was known amongst the artists and the kind of foodies of the of the time of downtown to go there at all hours for like extremely well executed French brasserie food, including those fries, which I remember being really good. And I think like Keith McNally is inspired by Florent or, you know, in, in a way they go hand in hand, probably um, him, you know, his downtown brasseries in Florent. But um, I thought it was really, it was a, it's, a, it's such an iconic place. Yeah. I wish it was still around. <laughs> right. Um, but like, there's like a restoration hardware there or something now, I'm sure. Oh, goodness. Jeez. The meatpacking is the worst neighborhood. It's, it's gotten worse through the years somehow. It's gotten worse. It's truly the worst neighborhood. I mean, yeah. I, I really liked going to that one bar, Hell, because it was like a mm. mi- really good mix of like gay and straight people. Mm. And it was like a little, you know, it's it had charm because it had all the celebrity photos with like the like Satan horns on them and then like. I remember running into like Rufus Wainwright there, and then all these like dudes were like coming up to him, and mm-hmm. my friends and I were like, "Who is this guy?" <laughs> so we were like kind of sitting across from him, and we like went up to him and we're like, "Who are you?" <laughs> 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 you must be somebody. Everyone's like oh coming up to you, and so he was like, "Oh, you know, my name is Rufus Wainwright," and we're like. Um, are you famous? Like, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then he was like, well, I was on the cover of Newsweek. And then <laughs> we were like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh he, my God. he, cigarettes and chocolate milk is like, tr- was a, one of my top five forever. <laughs> what an The entire Poses album kind Poses. of changed my life. Honestly. Me too. It's so, I mean, that's, it's such a remarkable, he's such a remarkable, um, singer. His, his voice is one in a billion. I Doesn't guess. surprise me that you saw him out because, like, from <laughs> everything I've heard, like, he got around the block and also, like, yes. he, he was a party boy for a bit before yeah. he settled down, you know? He, write, he writes about it on poses quite a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously I figured out who he was after that, but, <laughs> like, I was just, like, this young little college kid just, like, trying to act like I was an adult, so... <laughs> <laughs> I want to end it with Sidewalk Cafe okay. because I like lived right on that street for three years and I never went there for the food yeah. ever. Um, but I have to sh- like like shout out the quote unquote anti-folk movement and moldy peaches of course. being yeah. really cool and really unique and an extremely small window of time. I think that that's the cool thing about uh, anti-folk. It never really caught on and it certainly isn't uh today isn't really vital or vibrant um but also produced some like adam green like some really cool artists out of that scene uh and i have to shout out graham smith to uh kleenex girl wonder yeah uh, a old friend of mine who used to play there all the time so i think i went to his shows there quite a bit and uh, that, that dude graham smith is, is amazing yeah so. definitely yeah, I always just remember going to see um, artists there. I think there were a lot of showcases and stuff there, and yeah. people just pass around the tip jar, and it was like this very like mm-hmm. old school kind of free show, but tip the artist kind of thing. Um, <laughs> right. And then maybe I go there for brunch on the weekend. It's now a pretty cool cocktail bar, actually. They've they've kind of given it a little facelift, so the space looks nice. Since I went in in January for an event, and it it was nice actually. 
Shall we pop into repeat skip? Let's do it. Yay. All right, so we're going to start off with the Spoon album, Kill the Moonlight, which was put out in 2002 on Merge. You asked me to pick two albums, and like this one, to me, I picked two, two albums from 2002 that I think really captured that moment um, mm -hmm. in time. Both are pretty piano-driven. We'll get into the second one later, but I think Kill the Moonlight, uh, Girls Can Tell is my favorite Spoon album. It got me into Spoon, but mm -hmm. this album in particular, I think production-wise and just the way Britt Daniel becomes the front man of that band and really just becomes this the Brit Daniel we know today was crystallized with this album and of course Jim Eno you have to shout out him who's the the producer of this album and all the spoon material and I think I mean this I'll just ca my caveat is skipping anything from this album is difficult for me I will <laughs> say that I have a couple in mind yeah, let's start with repeats. Small stakes. The the opening album song, you know, I have to say, like, having a white stripes disc in your song is pretty epic. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's probably my favorite part of that song. And then, of course, the way we get by is the is the song that made it to the OC season one, episode five, um, where Seth and Ryan are at the Crab Shack. It's like this iconic scene. Um, I love that one. And I'll just say Jonathan Fisk, I, I, I hope that we all share uh, a love for Jonathan Fisk, which is this wonderful revenge song written about a crappy metalhead in uh, Britt Daniels' past. Those are a few of my favorites, but I have others that I could probably jump in on that I will repeat. Probably the whole album, actually. <laughs> this is a pretty good like album like as a whole. There's so much of it that... Really reminded me of like Elvis Costello and like a mix yeah. of Elvis and like Jeff Buckley, for, like when he would get like all like wooey or whatever. Um, <laughs> in revisiting it, the song that really stood out for me was something to afford to, mm -hmm. which I thought could be like a pandemic theme song. Yeah, Matt, I agree with you. I mean, for me, Girls Can Tell is the stronger album on the whole, but I feel like with every Spoon album, there are very few misses like it just they always flow really beautifully um and i guess for me if i had to pick a selection on this album i would probably repeat the way we get by just because i feel like that's just such a like a catchy tune and um mm -hmm. yeah i just remember putting it on like cdr mixes back in the day for yes. people. <laughs> um but i remember actually kind of tying this into food i remember once i was introduced to Britt daniel at enids um, oh enids and at the time, I was yeah. like super into Spoon, and I just remember I was kind of frozen. Like, and he was mm -hmm. the nicest guy, and um, I probably came across as this like really goofy like mm. blogger, awkward, whatever. Um, but yeah, he was super nice, and um, I've heard like every story I've ever heard about Britt Daniel is just like he is like kind and easy to yep. work with, and like just like a gentleman. I have heard as well. I have a friend who who knows him from Austin, and yeah, he seems like a very generous human being which is kind of rare mm -hmm. i have to say all the pretty girls go to the city the keys the piano arrangements it's just like one of those songs that just stays with you it's just like yeah pure kill the moonlight right there mm -hmm. uh, and the elvis costello um i think you got a feeling is like the most elvis costello song to me on the album yeah and it's such a great comparison i, I agree fully and you know, Elvis Costello, I don't know if that's a reference that ages well with today's music listening youth. I don't know if Elvis Costello is that popular anymore. Yeah. I'm going to say probably not. So hopefully Britt Daniel 
will get people into Elvis Costello. Yeah, <laughs> that's their gateway. <laughs> their gateway, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. What was your skip? I know you can't pick one, but it's hard. And this is maybe polarizing because Paper Tiger. I think I was reading some Pitchfork and from back in the day, and this is like their set piece. Uh, but I think Jimmy Know is brilliant. But to me, it gets a little too in uh, in the weeds with the production but but some will argue with me vehemently back to the life too maybe is not not the one i'd keep but yeah yeah sorry sorry brit Damien. i love the album this is no offense to you my skip was stay don't go but i think oh, it was yeah. just the beatboxing just to, i wasn't into it <laughs> fair but enough he sings false he goes up really high in that song though right yeah yeah i mean like you know sorry it's not it's not a bad song it's just maybe the no, one i would skip like if i was listening to it a lot <laughs> yeah yeah i feel the same i mean there aren't too many like like absolute skips but i guess i would maybe pick you gotta feel it just because i don't know i just feel like it's unnecessary in the mm-hmm. album like i would have been fine if it weren't there yeah. um but yeah i mean I, I always appreciate and enjoy every spoon album i mean if to me like when spoon puts out something you know you kind of know what you're getting and yeah. in some ways it's just kind of it's easy like that, you know? Yeah. It's comfortable. It, it's remarkable how long their career has been. I saw them at Prospect Park play maybe like two years ago, which mm-hmm. was really fun um, to see them. They played out. with Grizzly Bear. I that was a great show. I loved mm-hmm. that show. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, Late Late Spoon is getting better. It's it's hard it's hard to, to go against some of the early material. Girls Can Tell is clearly the magnum opus i think we agree on but man that this is a band that's getting better with age which is kind of incredible in music to see that and they're going through a little bit of a nostalgia thing too because they have this like reissue campaign called slay on q so they're reissuing a bunch of their old releases um and um i guess it's the first time in a while that they've been reissued on vinyl too so um and that's all going through matador um so that'll be cool that they get you know people can kind of rediscover them or like buy the vinyl they didn't get it back in the day yeah Mm -hmm. i love that divine fits album with the guy from wolf parade that brit daniel did Mm -hmm. that was that was i wish they would get back that band back together that was good stuff there were so many wolf parade offshoots yeah he's amazing there was another 2002 album we were going to talk about. Um, just <laughs> totally different. <laughs> hot, hot, heat. Make up the breakdown. Uh, which, yeah. uh, that was on Sub Pop. It was on Sub Pop, and like you asked me for a number two, and it was so hard. I, I mentioned Hearts of Oak would have been one. Maybe I'd pick maybe one of their, maybe LCD Sound Systems' first album. Mm-hmm. But this one, to me, really captured the moment. I think I bought this at the Virgin store. Uh, on CD, um, <laughs> close to when it came out in '02, and I remember seeing those massive, uh, you know, wall displays for this band. It was clearly a huge band uh, for the label. Um, I just wanted it was such a contrast between the Spoon album because, like, the frontman Steve Bays is also a Brit Daniel like frontman for this band. I mean, he really owned owned the stage. He really commanded. A pr- he was a commanding presence and. It's interesting. This this album got an eight point seven, and, and and Kill the Moonlight got an eight point nine. So if we're talking about 
we're, if we're litigating Pitchfork O2, I mean, this is an interesting thing. I mean, I, I thought the album just on reference was pretty terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really going to give it its, its fair shake, but then I went back and listened to some, so some songs and actually have a little bit of a different memory now. I don't know if you share that opinion. I mean, <laughs> well, I have to I have to say that I was very into this album when it came yes. out, and I actually forgot that Sub Pop put it out. I would have thought it was like RCA or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I haven't listened to it probably since <laughs> like very shortly after it was released. So mm-hmm. it was a trip going back to it, mm-hmm. and I think so much of it is cringy for me that mm-hmm. like. I, his his vocals and also mm-hmm. the lyrics and also just like it just seemed like they were trying so hard to oh. be seven different things yes. you know like a little Iggy a little Stooges a little like dance punk like chick 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 esque like mm-hmm. they were going in all these directions and you could tell it, it was I don't know it was a little all over the place and there were some songs like the one I picked for repeat oh no not now that was actually okay like I didn't actually mind mm-hmm. that too much, but there are so many songs like yeah. that. I just was like, Ugh. speaking of the vocal address, I I I, I got a lot of dismemberment plan from this band. I think dismemberment plan is one of these bands that when you when you get to some of the some of the um, albums, the vocals, even though the front man has great vocals and can sing in an in incredible range, it can be very disturbing. And I just saw the way the keyboard is working here. The electric, you know, the plugged in keyboards are are really straining at times mm. um, I agree with you that there's a lot of a lot of misses here but I think there are a few ones that I would put on a mixtape today I, I would say so yeah which ones um I mean come on bandages on my legs and my arms for you I mean come yeah on. <laughs> I mean that's a clap that was their hit that's a great it's, single you know yeah. it's a great single it's on mixtapes it's probably played a stores while people are folding clothes today to this day <laughs> yeah I mean naked in the city no not now as a movement is pretty fun for me it scratches that faint itch a little bit mm-hmm. which i find truly unlistenable to this day uh, I, I stand I'm, s- I'm laughing because like i was really into the faint when i was in college and, it, me too. and like i cannot listen to it oh now. i stand so hard for the faint blank wave <laughs> arcade was on all yes. the time on my radio show and <laughs> and like, man, what an unlistenable band. No offense, Fane. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but and this, they were like going there with these first two songs in some of the in some of that way. So, I, I think. But th- those are keepers to me, you know. Yeah. So. Jen, what would you keep? Oh well, I said. Oh, you said no, not now. Is there anything else, or that's <laughs> it, pretty much? Well, I mean, yeah, I, w- I would be basic as well and say bandages, but like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That would be my basic choice, just because, like. If I was at a dance party and that came on, like, like say we had a knots party or something like that, mm-hmm. like I would definitely be like, "Holy shit!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, if I heard this and it was like particularly a throwback event, I would freak out about bandages. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It's a good um, cut. <laughs> I I chose the song with the most cowbell on the album, ah. "Talk to Me, Dance with Me," um, which <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. Like, I think all of these songs, like. I have memories of just because like I saw this band so many times uh, mm-hmm. around the time of the yeah. album release mm-hmm. um, and I just remember dancing to that but um, yeah I saw them for the first time at 930 Club shortly after the album was released and I went with this 
this guy I had a crush on who was as straight as an arrow. <laughs> and yeah. like, it just, I just remember like dancing with him and we were doing all the bro stuff where like your arm is around the other guy's like yeah. shoulder. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's going to happen. It never happened. Uh. And then, and then they, Hot Hot Heat played Siren Festival one year where Idlewild headlined who I was super into. Mm. Um, and then that same friend, the straight boy, came back to like stay with me in 2003. I was like, it's going to happen now. It didn't happen then either. Oh, boy. Um, but it's funny. I have these memories. Uh, but it, it's kind of funny how a lot of times this, you know, I mean, this is just human nature. The song is attached to a specific place, a specific person, a specific mm-hmm. time in your life, a specific mm-hmm. venue. And um this this album very much so for me yeah i was i skipped oh god damn it because like that strokes ripoff is so bad it's so bad that and it's stylistically pre-divorced from the rest of the album and i have to say save us sos like that i like i talk talk i, I heard a tick tock tick tock ring ring like it's like it's like bad like high school theater like workshopping when you're like it's like i could see him like looking at his watch when he's singing the song like I don't know if there's uh, a bad. Is this like a very bad um, lyrical exchange there? Um, sorry, Steve Bays. Probably none of these lyrics make too much sense. No, you know? like I was like, <laughs> oh no, she's not a secret now, but nobody cares. Like I, I have no idea what he means by that. <laughs> but that song really hits though. Man. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's such an era. Yeah. Matt, what was your skip? There were quite a few skips, but I think my least favorite on this album is This Town. Yeah. That was mine, too. They really go up a range with the keyboard. I mean, they really, like, start climbing the stairs, and it, it goes somewhere. It goes, like, to hell, basically. They it's kind of off. like a like a terrible Ben Folds B-side or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like it. I, I had Steve Bass' number in my phone, and <laughs> I found it, like, 10 years ago, and my friend Steve Rydell um of hood internet I, he jokes me cracks me all the time about steve bays and we actually <laughs> joke about calling him which i won't do unless he wants to call me <laughs> steve call me if you have my phone number <laughs> i don't know how it ended up there it's probably from an interview that i long forgot yeah because this is one of those bands who are like okay this is we're done now in like 2016 <laughs> <laughs> and everyone uh, was like we thought you were done a long time ago yeah i <laughs> saw that on the website and look the promo photos were looking really good like they were looking healthy (laughs) these guys (laughs) i actually saw them a few years after this album came out but i don't remember the the show whatsoever they opened for editors at terminal five um but uh, yeah for some reason i completely blanked it out of my head i think i was Mm. just so over this album after like you know (laughs) summer of 2003 yeah What an what great album art and colorways though, gotta say. <laughs> mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. me, that was really strong. But, yeah. Can I shout out one album that I I was thinking a lot about this era that means yeah. a lot to me? Yeah. It's Exploding the Exploding Hearts album, their their debut. They had an EP, and I just like this is a band that I I debated pitching it for this segment, but it it's such a sad story that the three of the four members uh, died in a car accident literally coming back from a showcase in san francisco they were based in portland i believe portland or seattle i think it's portland and that band they were going to hit they were really poised to be a big thing and they reminded me a lot of waves the way waves kind of took over and became this this whole thing um this like punk um but with like a real like instrumentation and, and vocal sensibility that was cool and like it's just such a sad story but i still listen to that it holds up so well so i just i just had to in this podcast 
your to your listeners just exploding hearts i just love them and i used to dj them a lot and one time i had played played one of the songs at, at motor city and i and i played it and this woman comes up to the booth and and just really she she literally starts crying and so these are my friends thank you for playing it it, she, it was really crazy to have that happen and just like i think of this era uh, i think of exploding hearts and what could have been that band mm. wow and such a sad story it's a sad story i know it's a real real sad one when they, they, you know. yeah i'm always sad when something like that happens just out of the blue and you're or like Maybe they rise too fast and then mm-hmm. like get caught up in things and something happens. Mm-hmm. Those are like the stories that really get me just like mm-hmm. out of nowhere. I just remember, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Which one? Yeah, go for it. You have a memory. Yeah, well, you know, um, this guy that I knew, uh, Jerry, he was in a bunch of bands, drummer. You know, drummers, like they're in, they're mm-hmm. always in multiple bands because everyone needs mm-hmm. a good drummer and there's not that mm-hmm. many. And um, and then he, I think at this time he was in Chick Chick Chick, and then he like died. He like fell down an elevator shaft at a party mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, like when the those party mm-hmm. in those old buildings. He was in Turing Machine too, right? Yeah, yeah. Turing Machine, yeah. He was in so many bands, yeah. but he was he was also in a band that I managed. Um, at one point, he was in Knife Skills. It just shocks you. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, not, to, not to be such a downer. <laughs> no, oh, it's a memory. It's a mixtape memory. Is yeah. about this show is, is some, what makes your show so great is just bringing memories from this this really important era. Yeah. In in the New York music scene that you cover so well and we're part of. So. Yeah. Well, thanks so yeah. much for thank being yes, part thank of. You. Our new season. <laughs> really appreciate it. I love your show. Thanks so much to Matt for joining us for this great episode, looking back on food and music. So great. I so loved good. It. Um, and we will catch you next time on another episode of Mixtape, Mixtape Memories. Memories. Bye. Bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.